I'd finally realized I am frightened of my own husband. I would join you as if you're doing a deposition. What to say, what not to say. A trained monkey? A trained monkey who doesn't get lethal injections. She's going to eat you alive. You assaulted her? It's not good enough for you? I hit her? It's not even close. Absolutely not. I never touched her. We now believe Nick is involved in the disappearance of our daughter. Without a body, without a murder weapon, their only hope is a confession. You don't know anything yet? You need to tell me. How was your marriage, Nick? Are you asking me if I killed my wife? Man of my dreams, this man of mine may kill me. What about my son, Nick? This man may kill me. In her own words, this man may truly kill me. You ever hear the expression, the simplest answer is often the correct one? Actually, I've never found that to be true. This is Adaptation Nation. It's a podcast that reads the thing, watches the thing, and talks about the thing. Our subject today is Gone Girl, the movie and book, um, both of them written by Gillian Flynn, the movie directed by David Fincher, starring Ben Affleck, ever heard of him, and <laughs> Rosamund, uh, Rosamund, you should have heard of her, Pike, uh, that came out in 2014. The book came out in 2012 which makes this the 10th anniversary of Gone Girl, which is unbelievable. We're going to start there for a second before we get to our relationship with the book and just talk about how I teased this on the BR pod last week, Rebecca, with Vanessa. I don't think, mm. I, don't think I told you I was going to do this. I said, I think this is the most influential book of the last 10 years mm. in, a, in a broadly commercial way. Um, and, my the- and my argument for it would be this, and I, I'd love to hear your takes. I'd be thrilled if you agreed, but maybe more interesting if you don't agree or at least have a spin on it is, it ushered in the sales power of the female-centric psychological thriller, which, which still to this day, I think is probably the most routinely bankable commercial fiction work, right? Mm-hmm. You were, crawdads, right, Rebecca? I think crawdads, you can see a lineage that this crawdads is like a watered-down version of oh. something in Gone Girl to some degree. That um, pains me. <laughs> Why would you say that? Well, I'm okay, so I, I know it pains you, but is it wrong? <laughs> no, I, it pains me that I think that's right. Um, and I was thinking along the same lines that Gone Girl was groundbreaking in a lot of ways at the time, and then it ushered in like five years of this book is the next Gone Girl. Yeah. And oh, of that, you know, like everybody wanting to replicate not just the success, but kind of the formula of the book that this is an unreliable narrator. There's a really big twist. You won't believe what the twist mm-hmm. is, even though like if you know what happens in Gone Girl, it's hard to be surprised by the twist in anything that tells you that it's like a right, gone girl. Right, right. And that did launch. A bunch of those did become commercially successful. Girl on the Train, I think, was the next one, yeah. right? or the first post-gone girl, like big success. And those are such a staple now, 10 years later, that it's hard to remember that they haven't always been a staple of like middle-brow commercial fiction, even literary fiction, to some degree. That I, I think if you... We're doing this podcast like 40 years from now and looking back at bestsellers from 50 years past and you saw this Gone Girl book, you might not know what it was. I'm not sure we can get Mm. into this later, but I'm not sure that Gone Girl as a text itself stands the test of time. But I think the impact is, I mean, we're certainly still really feeling that and how media gets made and how books are produced, what stories are popular and what kinds of stories publishers and also now um, movie producers and, you know, TV producers think that audiences want to see amanda i think the only three oh go ahead yeah go for it 
the only book I would maybe put against it for most influential would be Fifty Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. which came out in 2011. And thinking about those two books coming out back to back is really interesting, I think, because mm-hmm. now publishing is different just forever after Fifty Shades of Grey and after Gone Girl. And I think people hate hated but i mean i talk about this a little bit later in my notes but i think that people hated both of those books because both of them got very strong backlash and love and the backlash seemed to be just such this very visceral reaction to being inside the brain of like feminine whiteness and i just find that whole thing super interesting and i don't think you could erase i I mean either one of them as influential that's a that's a great point. The being in the head of an unlikable white lady. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not enjoyable. And it's interesting, I think, especially with respect to Fifty Shades of Grey, because whether or not she was unlikable is a question. <laughs> like, that's yeah. a real personal preference kind of question. She's um, the worst. Where, right. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I wholeheartedly agree that she's <laughs> the worst. Uh, but we're, we know from the get-go here that Amy Dunn is unlikable. She knows she's unlikable, but like... That's the secret is that everybody else thinks that she's perfect and she's the one who knows that she's unlikable. We have to be in on that uncomfortable secret with her. I think pairing them, uh, Amanda, is really key because when we did a pod um, that was for a 10-year anniversary of the site, we did the most influential books of the Mm -hmm. last 10 years. And we had, I think, Gone Girl and Fifty Shades 1 and 2, kind of all of us in, in yeah. some combination. They're yoked together and yet distinctly different. I think for tw- for Fifty Shades, it's, well, that's a Freudian, it's not even Freudian. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Gone Girl. Uh, for, for Fifty Shades, twi- <laughs> like those three together, you know, kind of, the, the influences are different. I think from a ongoing influence, Gone Girl and looks better better now or stronger now than I would have thought then because Twilight and Fifty Shades seems like such juggernauts mm. but they're juggernauts that from a cultural like mainstream even popular literary consciousness commercial crossover whatever mainstream you want to use there haven't been there hasn't been Fifty Shades 2 that's done mm-hmm. very well there hasn't yeah. been Twilight 2 we've mm-hmm. tried and those things get keep you know, E.L. James um, and, and uh, Stephanie Meyer keep pumping out versions of those weirdly and then Gillian Flynn has gone like literally dark, not just mm-hmm. metaphorically dark, but gone <laughs> literally dark from a from a, a writing or a book point of view. She's been working in Hollywood. She could talk about it. And I think Gone Girl's the better for it, for having just sort of stood there and watched other challengers come at the champ. And like, there's books that sold and books that people really enjoyed, and I think that are, are pretty good. But Gone Girl is still the best of these, and it's going to yeah. be very hard mm-hmm. for someone to do any better. And I think even ten years later, we're going to talk about what's happened since then in the culture and literature since. I think weirdly, I think Gone Girl reads even better now than when I read it in 2012. I think I probably read it in 2013. This is not the kind of book I'd be a first on the beach for, but <laughs> at, at some point it became so, so prevalent that my, I want to know what's going on in the world of books had to get there. Um, so while we're, those thoughts of like Gone Girl centrality roll around in our head, let's talk about how we first encountered our first reactions. Uh, Rebecca, you, you got on early here. You were, you were the earliest of us here. I was at the time I was still hosting the Book Rages podcast with Jen Northington and Josh Christie. And we had Adam Ross on to talk about his book, Mr. Peanut, which shares some sort of central questions with Gone Girl. It's also a story about a marriage gone wrong. And the top segment of every episode of Book Rages was what are we reading right now? And the hosts plus whoever our guest was would answer that question. And he was like, I am reading this manuscript by a writer named Gillian Flynn and it's called Gone Girl and like just watch out. And Mm -hmm. I don't remember 
anything else about like the details of it. I don't remember how much time elapsed between him mentioning that and when galleys became available, but I read it in a galley. Um, I, I, I'm sure I wrote about it somewhere. Like I, I remember reading it early. Oh and then, Lord, should have looked for that. <laughs> I have burned down my internet archives for oh, good go. reasons, right. Jeff O'Neill. All right. um, and then I was thinking about this last week while I was rereading it, and I was like, "Did I really read a galley of Gone Girl? Would they have made galleys of Gone Girl?" I went down this whole mental rabbit hole about mm. like that book was such a big deal, and I had to text. I texted Josh, who was one of my co-hosts, and I was like, "There were galleys of Gone Girl, right? Like I didn't invent that memory," and he confirmed that there were, in fact. But it's hard to imagine that because if publishing had known what a big deal that they didn't book know. was going I read to be. That. They didn't know. Right. Her first oh, yeah. They had, sold fine. They had, so yeah, I, they had no idea. They absolutely it, would have been a galley. Yeah, yeah. But if they, right. But if they had had any idea what oh. a splash it was going to be or really yeah. how big this twist was, there would not have been galleys of it. So I was like second guessing my memory of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is, I read it before it came out and I remember watching it, people discover it on Twitter and that at the time, like, the culture I haven't been on Twitter for a couple of years now, but the culture then was still like relatively respectful about not spoiling stuff. Mm-hmm. So people were like talking around it and like, Oh, just wait, but they didn't want to give it away. And it was fun to watch that explode. Cause what I thought I had experienced was just like a book person that I knew who had read a thing in manuscript told me about this other, this great book that he had read and that I was going to read it early as well. And then it turned into this like sensation, which was mm. just, you know, unexpected for everybody. I think. Mm-hmm. So Rebecca was in early. Amanda, it sounds like you you saw the wave cresting and you got up on your surfboard there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had to uh, because I was a bookseller at the time uh, at a small indie bookstore here in Richmond. Um, and my boss was forever getting on me for not reading a lot of contemporary literature because I was still doing you know my, my old blog back then. Uh, the old stick, Which yes. is about yeah, classics. Yeah. Um, and so like, fine. So I picked it up and I read it because uh, we, I mean, legitimately, we had customers who came in and asked about it. Um, and then we started getting customers who came in to return it because really yes because they would get to the twist hate it so much and then they would bring it back and try to get their money back and I was the asshole oh sorry I was the jerk who was like you spent thirty dollars on that hardcover you read half of it I'm not giving you a refund <laughs> just because you don't like you it return Paris half Star, a maybe? Snickers bar half a <laughs> Snickers bar you don't eat yeah. half the bar. Yeah. You got to the reveal. I'm not going to take your money back. No. Oh, my gosh. I, that did not occur to me that people would hate the twist enough they, to try to bring it back. I mean, some people loved it. But that was the only time in my time of being a bookseller that I had more than one person come in and try to get a refund because they didn't wow. like the oh content. And it was just Gone Girl. They didn't do it with Fifty Shades of Grey, which I definitely would not have taken returns of that. But, <laughs> but Gone Girl was a, biohazard. a lot. Yes, yeah, seriously. It was a lot. People got a lot of feelings about it. That's what I remember should now. Say, should say right here that we will be spoiling this. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, outside the... But in, in terms of the twist, the twist being, of course, that Amy is the architect of her own disappearance. It happens mm-hmm. about almost exactly midway through the novel. I reread mm-hmm. this on in digital, which, as you all know, is very difficult to know where you mm-hmm. are uh, in the book. But even sort of experientially, it feels like the middle and you do a big a big switch <laughs> though I think for me the real twist secondarily now and looking at the audacity of what Flynn is doing is is actually when Amy gets robbed is actually when the oh. book feels to me like it is really unpredictable uh-huh. at that point because even then Amy is off um, off the script so it really feels like anything there could happen That's so I almost think of that as the secondary twist um, in the book because she's so in control up until that point and I, we, we should talk about our first I guess mine I don't re- I remember reading it and being thrilled that it was as interesting and as, as provocative 
um, and provocative in an, in an interesting way, not provocative just to be like shocking, but like I, I'm not surprised that people brought it back in. It's has it's that mm-hmm. it's not the thing people thought it was. Right. And Flynn is playing with that through through Amy. Everyone knows what people want, right? Everyone, including Amy, everyone knows what people want. Flynn knows what we want, and she doesn't want to give it to us and plays with us. And people either you, I think, either enjoyed that. Or you like, oh, I thought this was Crawdads, right, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the people yeah. rebu- re- bringing it back probably loved Crawdads. Well, they that's- just want a, a book about a pretty young white girl dying yes. who stays dead because that's what people want. <laughs> or gets rescued by the cops and mm-hmm. her husband sure. gets put away in handcuffs or whatever. Right? The bad you know, guy gets the, the comeuppance. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think yes. it's hard for people to swallow and especially 10 years ago harder for people to swallow like this gorgeous white lady is actually deeply bad and (laughs) (laughs) get your head around that you know like (laughs) that that you're not gonna like her and you're not supposed to like her and she doesn't care at this point if you like her and being a white lady who doesn't care if you like her is Mm. a thing that was like you know pretty tough 10 years ago yeah. um, it's a little more still common wrestling now. with that right oh yeah yes i mean, yes. I mean yes. I think yeah. we're not in the post amy world where it's a like shock that a attractive white woman could be sort of the hannibal lector of suburban missouri yeah like, I mean, we still, still live that, in a patriarchal white supremacist culture so yeah. <laughs> but that that that's the i mean that's the real twist right is that she's a villain right and and all the very familiar ways if if somehow she was a man it would be very familiar to be a manipulative, you know, mm-hmm. blood, th- well, not even bloodthirsty, but willing to spill blood for her own ends that <laughs> she actually doesn't are like elusive it, right? and sort she of banal. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't I remember seem to enjoy it. I was texting Amanda trying to figure out if we went to see this movie together in 2014, mm. because like who knew at the time that we were going to need the memory of having gone to see the movie. <laughs> but, I do, <laughs> but I do remember whoever I saw it with that when the t- reveal happened in the film, there were people in the theater who hadn't read the book and it was mm. apparent by like the gasping and they're like, Oh no, she did it like, they <laughs> at the screen. And I, that was, it was really fun, but also like, you could feel the energy shift of like what's going to happen now. And it was, it was cool to get to experience that in a collective and sort of in real time, watch people grapple with it. I do remember reading it and going like, shut up. You know, like I remember (laughs) being like, no, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible, well, no, I think I'm an ideal mystery reader where I never figure it out before I'm supposed to. Um, And I, she got me, she got me good. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I the only inkling I didn't know was going to happen, but I felt like that I'd read enough Agatha Christie mm. to be like the thing they want you to think is not the thing. Yeah, I did not think it was going to be that big of a twist. I thought it might be the cop or his sister or something. Mm. That that's the mm-hmm. Agatha Christie move, right? Is to have it be some a side character that has some um, interesting but orthogonal relationship that's like barely teased out. This one flip the script in a way that I didn't really understand. Let's do a little bit of like reception success of the book. Mm. Starred weeklies in Kirkus and Publishers Weekly. So those are pre-print. I think those are interesting. Those are pre-publication reviews. Mm-hmm. Got it right. People liked it. Janet Malcolm liked it. Um, it got picked up as a movie contender early, which is, I think is important. Like in the pre-publication phase, someone somewhere read it. I don't exactly how. It was Reese Witherspoon. Who. Her company. Yeah, but I know how she got it at that point. Like mm-hmm. someone said, okay, Reese, pick this up. Before Reese is Reese in the current cultural moment of books and adaptations and Hello Sunshine and everything else like that, Fincher got interested in it early. And we'll talk about casting a little bit later, but the pieces, most of the pieces fell into place 
Amy notably did not. And the alternate casting stuff for Amy, I'm not sure how much you guys did of that, but it's fascinating. The two names that I guess were the, like, silver and bronze runner after Reese. I guess Fincher told Reese, you know what, this is not right for you, and she agreed, mm-hmm. or at least. <laughs> I, I think she. I think they were all, whoever decided that, we can get into that. But then pretty quick after that, the movie fell into place. The book sold, I mean, again, it's hard to remember now. It sold a lot and for a long time. Yeah. For several years, it was the crawdads of its day. I wonder, I, I, this is one thing where if we had a book scan account or this was even publicly available, I'd love to know the, the shape and velocity of sales of Gone Girl versus mm. Crawdad. I'd be fascinated to see. My guess is that Gone Girl had a higher peak, but Crawdads has a longer tail. No one talks about Crawdad for reasons that um, I'm eternally grateful for <laughs> at this particular moment. Um, but people still have a relationship to Gone Girl. Like People have seen the movie, they've read the book, they've heard of it. Um, I think even to pull a gone girl or like even a gone girl becomes a shorthand for this kind of story of maybe someone is faking or otherwise mm. manipulating expectations or the, or the law to get there. And I think that's a durable legacy here. Let's get in. Any other thoughts or, or notes know, that you have about the publication or, or writing of Gone Girl? Yeah, I went back and read some of the original reviews also, and it was really interesting how much they gave away. Like, oh, a lot of oh. the early reviews talked about, I can't remember if it was Publishers Weekly or Kirkus, but one of them, like, says in basically the first line that Amy's an unreliable narrator of her of the story Rude. of her death, which yeah. isn't a full giveaway, but gives away a lot. And it was really interesting I think the most interesting piece to me was that none of the big mainstream reviews addressed any of like the feminist angle or just didn't, none of them seem to even pick up on this has potential to be like a real lightning rod for discussion Mm. around feminist ideas and expectations of women and women's rage and like all of that. It was super interesting to see that that was completely absent. Like the closest that it came was publishers weekly saying, this is a must read for any fan of bad girls and good writing, (laughs) (laughs) which like, yeah, bad girls. Yeah. What bad girl, which is weirdly close to the cool yeah. girl, well, actually, which is a weird shorthand. And yeah. that's as you were talking about, like pulling a gone girl is sort of just in the cultural water now. Like you can find the Internet is littered with essays about cool girls and cool girl culture. And is Jennifer yeah. Lawrence a cool girl? And you don't yes. have to explain that that's from Gone Girl anymore. You don't have to talk about the sourcing. It doesn't even matter if you know that it's from Gone Girl at this point. You know what? Uh, if you're in the discourse about media online, you know what a cool girl is. Mm-hmm. I want to take. I should. I skipped over my stuff about Flynn. I do want to talk about Flynn for a minute, where she was at this particular moment, where she came from, uh, uh, a Kansas Cityan, Rebecca mm-hmm. Shinsky, a, a Jayhawk, undergrad at University of Kansas. Big wig for for Kansas cultural consumption. I did watch that HBO show you recommended, which is oh. like way too close to home, and I need to I unpack that. Between that it's and Crossroads, sweet. it's been a very like what is. <laughs> Why is my adolescence where I grew up on display here? Flynn, who went to KU um, and then got a journalism degree at Northwestern, became the Lord of the Rings beat writer for Entertainment <laughs> Weekly. Love it. She contains multitudes. <laughs> um, was Wrote Sharp Objects and Dark Places while fully employed by Entertainment Weekly. Got laid off, um, much like the Amy and Nick do in the book of Gone Girl around the recession of 2008. Um, used her severance package to basically underwrite, subsidize the writing of the first few chapters of Gone Girl, got a book deal, got sent off, off the races. 
we have lost her as book people to Hollywood mm-hmm. um, between Utopia, Widows, and the writing of this screenplay. It's too bad. She's recently been announced to be one of the acquiring editors for this new publishing imprint. We've talked about Rebecca Zando. She's going to mm-hmm. do mystery and thrillers for them. That has yet to bear fruit. I'm fascinated to see. Um, Flynn's parents were teachers. One was a film school professor of a community college in Kansas City, and her mom was a reading comprehension teacher so huh. really really set up nicely wow. to write books about movies kind of, of that, or, that are very influenced yeah. in movies i feel like gillian flynn knows her hitchcock yes apparently there's a story that she would practice the final scene in american psycho in the mirror and uh, had it down cold <laughs> i love that also when she was a kid she wrote a newspaper for her household called the cat's news uh <laughs> news of her cat and the cat would always be like dead or kidnapped or <laughs> other things like that. So it's all text there. Big look for the cat in the movie, too. I do need to talk about the cat. And the her movie. and Stephen yeah. King are like the two brains I don't want to live in. I was going to say, I was wondering does about it... how she does and doesn't relate to King. Now, she doesn't have the catalog, of course, nor is she speculative, right? She doesn't have the science fiction and fantasy angle. But having said that, this is the closest analog I could think of now. I'm not a huge mystery thriller, psychological thriller reader, so other people have a better category. But in sort of the cultural consciousness, I feel like misery might be an you know an, an ancestor mm. of Gone Girl mm-hmm. in its own way. Kathy Bates as a white woman villain of the most kind, where a little more on the unhinged side, like uh, we're playing into the unhinged. Yeah. Maybe Dolores Amy's, Claiborne? <laughs> yeah, Dolores Claiborne. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but Amy's villainy is her hingedness. Uh, I think is my one way we, we think about it there. Uh, let's see. If, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I would love to get another book from her. Um, I didn't, I don't remember going, I, I've confused Dark Places and Sharp Objects in my mind. I read them both. Mm-hmm. They are both very good. They are not Gone Girl. They're both very good. My memory is people that went back and read them were pleased with what they found. Yeah. But it wasn't like, I don't know. I, I don't know if you go back and read something else. It can never do what Gone Girl did. That's why it's a singular um, document. I've- I remember it being interesting going back to the first two and getting to see sort of like the seeds of the Gone Girl yeah. work and the threads that were going to come together to create that. And I did watch the, I think it was Showtime adaptation of um, Sharp Objects mm. with Amy Adams. Yes. That was very, it was really well done. Mm-hmm. Which she worked on. And then mm-hmm. Gillian Flynn, uh, also a cagey woman, no surprise here, <laughs> um, as part of her deal with the, to make the book into a movie, said, I get first crack at the screenplay. And right. Fincher thought what she did was great, That's and smart. she gets full screenwriting credit. Was not nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. I have a grievance section about how this was <laughs> locked out of several interesting categories I mean, in the 87th Academy Award. Did Neil Patrick Harris win Best Actor for this? <laughs> we we got we to save the movie stuff. Um, why is the book important interesting? I think we've done it from a that moment point of view anything else to capture from the cultural moment of 2012 as we were encountering it because i think i'm actually more interested in hearing your reaction to what's important and interesting about it now but before we do that let's hop back into the delorean any any lingering ideas issues or concerns to mop up before we um engage it within our present selves Mm -mm. no all right so on reread then what struck you amanda why don't you lead off um it's I re- well, the reread made me think about how much reading it the first time was really validating. Yeah. Um, 
so it was it was nostalgic in that way. I also <laughs> Interesting. like this is I remember being like, wow, finally a book for the angry ladies, mm. you know, <laughs> and mm. I remember. Um, well, this time my reaction to it was very it was like I 60 percent that and 40 percent. Wow, this would never get written now mm-hmm. uh, post me too. There's so much about Amy and the way that she, I mean, fakes, fakes several sexual assaults, uh, like just the whole, her whole thing, her whole jam, I don't know, would, would get greenlit this in the year of our Lord 2022. Say more about that. I think I, I, I'm nodding and biting my fingernails as you say that, but unpack, <laughs> why would it not get made like that now? Well, I think that after, not, po- it's not really after, we're still in it, but you yeah. know, in the kind of post Me Too, in the middle of Me Too era, whatever you want to think about, however you want to think about it, people are very rightly wary of putting out narratives about women who fake or make up abuse of any kind because you don't want to contribute to that counter narrative that, like, you know, ladies be crazy. I will say the uh, mm-hmm. not the, the not right. explicit <laughs> yes. version of that. Um, nobody wants to be caught on the on the wrong side of Me Too, narratively speaking. And so I don't think a book like this would be published now, even though, you know, Gillian Flynn is not saying because this very obvious narcissistic sociopath faked a rape, therefore, all claims about rape are fake. You know, like, she's not making an ethical statement about, about the topic, really, I don't think. Um, but it would be read that way now. Yeah, I think it really complicates things on the reread that... Amy has really valid reasons for being as angry as Mm -hmm. she is. And then also she is a sociopath and that if she were just an angry woman seeking revenge, and there are plenty of those thrillers that exist now, you could even get to angry woman fakes her death or angry woman murders the bad husband, you know, out by Natsuo Carino is one of those where a a group of women do this. You can get there, but the faking of sexual assault as a, a, a piece of any of this is really a third rail. And also that she seems to really internalize misogyny is the phrase that just kept coming mm-hmm. up for me. She seems to have really absorbed a lot of negative messaging about women and has a lot of negative things to say about other women and wants to have her power. She wants to win. She talks repeatedly about like, I'm not going to let Nick win. And she talks repeatedly mm-hmm. about needing to win and to come out on top. And that's a real, like from 2022 eyes, that really looks like I'm trying to, you know, take power that men have and act as bad as they do and behave as badly as men are allowed to behave. And that's not the like central goal of 2022 feminism. I don't think it was the central goal of 2012 feminism, but it was much more in the water then of like, well, men get away with all of this. Mm -hmm. So like, let's take back some of our power. We can be just as bad as they are. or We can be worse. We could fake our own deaths. Um, And that's just not, the place we're coming from now, or uh, it's not an accepted, celebrated argument about feminism. And that would, I think, that would get in the water of this if, it, if this were a new book now. But there's, mm-hmm. you know, I find it, I found it much more tangly on this reading to be like, oh, right, okay, she's angry for really valid reasons, but also this character is not making a feminist argument. This character is a like narcissistic sociopath who's mad that someone was mean to her. Amy's not yeah. mad about structural issues and the structural treatment of women. This is just about her and not losing and complicating that with feminist argument would not be received well. 
Yeah, and if there were, if this, again, I agree with you. Gillian Flynn said, you know, I am a feminist, but I'm not, you know, super well-read. She's not, like, extremely online as these mm-hmm. things go. Mm-hmm. And if she, or if this didn't, if this book didn't exist and someone had this kind of idea or she did, I don't think it, I think it'd still be written. It may not be written exactly the same way. But I think the, we'd be poor for the book not existing. I'd be, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think it's important. And the way Amy is manipulating common, mainstream, agreed-upon, comfortable narratives and how Amy and Flynn are then turning them on their heads, saying how they're screwed up, is part of the book. And part of that is, and part of that turning things on the head is saying, well, yeah, most 98% of women are not faking sexual assault claims, but if you're a bad person, you do bad things, and mm-hmm. faking them is a bad thing. You wouldn't be like, geez, Hannibal Lecter really showing out for the cannibals. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not fair. That's just not fair to you know, making an interesting, complicated, challenging character for all of that person's behaviors to be, like, acceptable? How to, how can that possibly work? It reminds me of the huh. old Du Bois versus Langston Hughes argument, which is, or- you know, Du Bois was like, Hughes, do not write about black people drinking and having a good time because that's what white people think we do anyway. And you're just, and he's like, well, I'm just writing about the multiplicity of black experience. That's my way of advocating for black wholeness is to say, we're all these things. All these things are possible. And I don't want to be confined by having to be like marching along and saying, is this good for the culture or the community or something like that? And that that argument, I think, exists here to some degree. It's like, do I have to? Or can I do some other stuff? And she doesn't have must... to, but she <laughs> yeah. wouldn't. Like, what you're describing right. is Twitter discourse in 2022. Yes. Like, yes. this is yes. the, you know, and which is a thing that all three of us have very publicly been like, this is bad and we don't like mm. it. <laughs> and it is bad and I don't like it. And I don't like that a character can't be mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different things at once. And I don't like that. I mean, we, we see this all the time, especially in YA when an author writes a YA novel with racism in it, suddenly that book is racist and that author is racist. Uh, If it's not handled in a very particular prescribed way that Twitter has approved. And I think that's garbage. And I think that's exactly what would happen to this book Mm -hmm. if it got published now. Yeah, Uh, I I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think it this gets torn apart if it comes out right now. And there's no way for Gillian Flynn to defend the like, I just want to ask interesting questions. There are a million interesting questions to ask Mm -hmm. about Amy. Like, how does a person who is a beautiful, tall, white, blonde woman who has every advantage in the world and a ton of money come to feel so aggrieved? What is, is it still hard to be a woman if you're that kind of woman? What does she have to be angry about? How do beautiful, tall, white, blonde women with tons of money participate in their own oppression and the oppression of other people around them and, and come to be rage-filled about that and what they feel is owed them? There are a million conversations to have about this and we wouldn't get to have any of them because yeah. aggrieved Twitter would take over. And maybe the same questions could be answered if she didn't sort of fake sexual assaults and just faked her kidnapping weirdly. Like, I think maybe that people would be all all right is the wrong term. But there is something, as Amanda said, especially not something. There is an especial disdain, disgust, anger about the idea, even the idea in a fictional context by a sociopath mm-hmm. of using this particular move at all. Right. Well, that's the thing where like where women don't get to to be the worst, you know, like I think it's the same blowback that happened with Twilight and with Fifty Shades of Grey. The teenage girls in Twilight don't get to be desperate and needy. The woman in Fifty Shades of Grey doesn't get to be vanilla or boring. And Amy doesn't get to be a sociopath. Like the female characters don't get to be the full range of evil. 
we get to be an evil that like the internet is okay with, <laughs> which is very yeah. little. <laughs> but where yeah, we're it's like, like saying dude, Lecter, like, Hannibal Lecter yes. is a bad guy because uh, he's short or something. <laughs> like they're like, no, he's just bad. He bad. Yeah, Any like, bad. <laughs> I I don't know where Flynn was coming from when she mm. went there with having this character fake sexual assault, but. We've seen over the last 10 years with the nomination of Supreme Court justices, yeah. not to mention others, <laughs> that being accused of sexual assault is, like, is the worst thing in some circles that you can do to a man. Certainly there are men who believe this to be the worst thing that they can ever be accused of, even if they've done it, and that being an accused murderer might not actually be as bad. So I, I can get to how if a character like Amy is a rage-filled sociopath who wants to cause as much harm as possible to these men that she thinks have wronged her that's where you go it makes sense mm-hmm. for who the character is yeah i think having said all that for me i think that would you're we're all in the same wavelength that this is where the locus of um discourse to put it mildly would be if this book came out today i think it's actually not the most interesting thing by a long shot here oh, yeah. for me the thing that it's almost a for me, it's like it's a hor- it's a domestic horror novel is mm-hmm. how I kind of encounter it, right? Where the horror here is the truth of that it can be the case that you can live with someone and think you love them and they think they love you, but the fact of the matter is you don't know what's going on in their head, right? And this is where Nick opens up. Like he thinks about her head as like an object, right? And mm-hmm. unspooling it, I'd, I'd read it here, mm-hmm. but it's long and creepy and I don't want to have those words <laughs> in my mouth right now. Um, and then from the same time, Amy doesn't always know what Nick is thinking, but then they engage in a courtship. Um, and I think Amanda, your point here, we're going to get to in a minute about, we don't see, or Rebecca, I don't remember one of you wrote mm-hmm. about, we actually don't see the unraveling. We mm-hmm. see the courtship through the, in the movie, especially through a proposal, which is a new scene for the movie mm-hmm. to her disappearance, essentially. And everything between that is contested ground in the book, in the movie between Nikki and Nick. Nick's recollection and um, testimony, and then Amy's, of course, uh, diary, which is mostly usefully fake in some ways and usefully truth in the other. But looking at each other and saying, what what have we done to each other and how mm-hmm. it can go wrong? And these sort of tectonic, silent, slow, huge forces that can happen in a relationship that if you are not careful and if you are not mindful, can ruin your relationship and ruin your life. Um, Rebecca, you probably had this note. It's like therapy question mark. Like, did anyone ever talk about at what point should have Nick and did they ever consider going to a therapist at any point? Right. Bad news for you about how sociopaths feel about therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but I mean, just it wasn't. Although, her parents are psychologists. So at I least mean, it, you think I it would have been broached at some point. Would have loved a scene of Amy performing in therapy. Yeah. She's so aware of what she's supposed to perform in every situation that she's in. Mm. It would have been interesting to see it, but also not very surprising. And you know, that basically, is it the case that, that Nick ruined Amy's life? And if so, what are the costs and consequences and, and just punishment, so to speak for that? That's what gets really interesting to me. And those netty, I mean, Flynn, Agatha Christie has sort of clockwork, plotting this seems to me clockwork plotting and she has trapped them together at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the book not Mm -hmm. just the end right their finances their emotional state the the wonderfully timed for the book's um announcement of of nick's mother's cancer and where it is his father's alzheimer's all the stuff puts them in a particular place that almost seems in second reading over determined but still still 
super useful for that's to me that's where i really find the this is a horror story version of a very common and familiar dynamic and many of us are subject to this is the thing that could happen not in a real way but in an emotionally real way Mm. yeah i think that that really gets to the core of what Amy is mad about like we don't see the unraveling and and the fact that we don't made me assume that there's nothing really remarkable about it that Mm -hmm. these are two people who met who were each shining it on for each other like you do in the beginning of a new relationship maybe Amy was shining it on more than most people do (laughs) in the beginning of a new relationship (laughs) that over time you can't hide those faults about yourself from your partner and you see your partner's faults and she seems to take this these very mundane diff- like I don't think they've had anything hard happen to them that doesn't happen to all kinds mm-hmm. of couples and all kinds of people in all kinds of situations you lose your job your parents get sick you move it turns out that your partner isn't perfect and oh also they know that you're not perfect mm-hmm. and like that recognition that she's not perfect I think is really the thing that Amy's the most upset about that Nick has actually seen that and seen her not to mention that it turns out she can't escape these mundane things happening to her and she seems to think that she deserves to not ever experience that. But they both do right like that's kind of the I think this is actually the reason people returned the book <laughs> <laughs> is that mm. they are both unlikable in the same way, and that same way is entitlement. Like, she yeah. feels so entitled to a perfect life where her money stays, you know, and her parents treat her well, and she has a job, and her husband is perfect, and everything is shiny and bright, and he feels entitled to a cool girl, which he has at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Until he starts to get on her nerves, and then some of that shine starts to come off. But they both feel Nick's entitlement feels very familiar. Like we all know mm-hmm. or have been dudes like that, yeah. or been with, yes. or been married to. You know, dudes like that uh, who, when one hard thing happens, suddenly they forget how to do the dishes and are just obnoxious. Yeah. But There's... Amy's entitlement is like it's 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 you know because she's a sociopath, it's a little bit more sinister, uh, and they they both end up being very um, repulsive. Mm. Yeah, there's that great line in, I think it's at the end of the cool girl monologue where it's like you, that you really have to watch out for the men who say, I like strong women, because mm-hmm. it, it means that they have recognized <laughs> that like they're not dealing with a cool girl, you're presenting some sort of problem to them. And then the response to that is actually usually the opposite of liking the display mm-hmm. of strength. I, I think entitlement too is like there's several levels of entitlement. I think we can all be subject to them in different ways, but especially when it comes to interrelationship and in all kinds of interpersonal dynamics. And I'll speak from my own experience here is like a desire for frictionlessness mm-hmm. in relationships, right? A desire for not just for me, for you to get me, but for you to get me without having to work at getting me. And I don't have to work at you getting me. I don't have to work at understanding you and you don't have to work at understanding me. And I think that's why we get so much of their courtship because Mm -hmm. they're performing for each other, their ability to be frictionless for each other, right? How Mm -hmm. easy it could be for us to be together, but that's a shtick you can only play for so long. Um, And it's useful, right? To be frictionless for someone else. If you want to win them, bag them, screw them, marry them, you know, whatever. But at some point when you're just living your life in Missouri and you're 36 years old, looking for something to do, frictionlessness doesn't have the appeal it once does. And what do you do in the face of that frictionlessness, right? Because they both speak it in the same way. Nick wants the cool girl, but Amy wants him to get his treasure hunt clues without having to work Mm -hmm. at it, right? And be fluent in her 
screwed up love language, for lack of a better term. And when he's not, <laughs> it makes her mad, right? And the thing that converts her is when he starts speaking her love language under duress into camera and saying, yeah, I get, I know you well enough to lie to you in the yeah. way you want to feel, mm-hmm. which is the th- same thing he did at the beginning to win her heart, right? To, to lie to her, hide up the cleft chin that Affleck does beautifully. Affleck's amazing oh, in this movie. He's so um, good. He's so good. But like, that idea of when when it is no longer frictionist, when it is hard, whose responsibility is it? And they both seem to be expecting it not to be hard. And I think that's what you're saying from an entitlement point of view. And that's yeah. cultural for them. But I also think personality-wise, that same... I think with men, the entitlement is more cultural right that's why the cool girl thing resonates so i mean we should let's we should maybe just go ahead and get into that but that's why that resonates so much because that's Mm -hmm. everyone reading that book with any modicum of self-awareness about knowing people like this is like yes this is it we all know this Mm -hmm. how did no one articulate it this way before and and revelatory in that way which i think elevates it beyond the tiktok of you know is the was her ligature on long enough for the police to believe her kind of procedural stuff Mm-hmm. Um, Amanda, I know you were especially excited to talk about the cool girl stuff. We've talked about it some here. What resonates, if anything, with you now in these days? Are we still subject to this? Like, where are we in the cool, the long, the long, the, the long cool girl trope? <laughs> yeah, except now it's on TikTok, which is like somehow worse. I don't, uh, I fear for my children. <laughs> yeah. Mm. This, it makes me very nervous. Um, but, you know, it, it was, like you said, the first time I had heard somebody say it that way we all know all women know that this is who you're supposed to be like the 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 conflicting messages that you get about you're supposed to be able to eat a dozen hot dogs and then also be a size two and none of it is supposed to look hard we all know that but to have it like written out in three pages by a serial killer was like well i get this is accurate and now i don't know how i feel about it (laughs) because she's mad enough that she's killed people and I might be too. Like, obviously, I'm not going to go do that. But like, <laughs> I've been mad about this my whole life. And it feels mm-hmm. very justified. It feels validating. But it also feels real gross because she's not nice. <laughs> it, I remember reading it the first time and it having that experience of like, when you find out there's a word for a thing you didn't yes. know there was a word yes. for. Like, yeah. oh, this is a thing. And it's not just a thing that I've felt or that I've talked to my girlfriends about. But maybe everybody feels it at least this writer is counting on it being recognizable enough that there's a huge chunk of the book devoted to this idea of it and feeling like seen by it Hmm. in that way i also think it matters that amy's in her mid to late 30s when she's Mm -hmm. telling us Mm -hmm. this that you feel the awareness of this when you're a teenager or my own experience when you're a teenager and in your 20s like how women are supposed to present and that you're supposed to be concerned um, straight women with what men are perceiving of you. And if you want to catch a dude, there's like certain ways that you that you're supposed to act. And these are things that no one sits you down and tells you they're just in the water and you absorb it. And as you age into your thirties and out of being sort of a sexual object in public life because you're too old now for men to be staring at you they're all still looking at the 18 year old women Mm -hmm. that are walking around you get you get more perspective on what those expectations felt like and the ways in which your own I mean I can look back there are moments in my like late teenagehood and early 20s where I can see that I was doing a cool girl thing and I had no idea that that's what I was doing Mm -hmm. at the time and you 
but that I think that stuff only comes with distance and perspective to like, to get outside of the expectation. I'm almost 40. Nobody expects me to eat 15 hot dogs and be a size two and for it to look easy anymore. This is not how our culture talks about 40 year old women. So I have the I can see now what that was. And I think it matters that Amy is at that point developmentally in her life where she can look back maybe she's been more aware of it because of the you know being a sociopath thing and performing for people but it matters there like getting a an 18 year old character saying this would feel really powerful too um, but we don't get that i mean maybe we get it now we weren't getting it 10 years ago before gillian flynn said mm. all this out loud and i don't believe it when we get it now like you don't know no that. you're yeah a 40 year old author writing in an 18 year old voice like I don't right know. right <laughs> yeah our 18 yeah. i think this is a problem for like it's still a problem, and I think Amanda's right that we're going to continue seeing this just in different formats, really for as long as our culture has a sexism problem. That mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it just presents itself, it gets wrapped up in different packaging. But men do still expect women to perform in certain ways. Women are still absorbing messages like this of what you need to do. It's just coming out differently, and you still have to get to your 30s or 40s to be able to have some distance on it. It's interesting, too, that it's it's a product of patriarchy of, of a certain kind of structural desire. But then the idea of desire itself is very much at play in this book as well, where if you know what's desirable and then can play to that, you kind of make a deal with the devil, right? I mean, Nick mm-hmm. ultimately makes that deal with the devil. He can make himself desirable enough to Amy that she'll come back. But then you got to live with the consequences of that. Like, I don't know if that's the cool guy. Like, I don't know what the opposite or the the gender flipped version of the cool girl is like, what is the performance of masculinity that's most attractive to the widest swath of like equivalent white men in that economic demographic. Mm -hmm. I looked at it this time because I was interested in what did Amy like about Nick to start, right? Okay. It's Mm -hmm. clear that Amy was performing curl goal for Nick, but what did Nick like, or what did, what'd she like about him? And it's this corn fed Missouri, good looking, affable, articulate but not too articulate like there's a scene in the movie that i really thought was interesting where affleck was going around the room and saying who are you here with and in in by process of elimination eliminating all these tropes of desirability and the only one remaining the only viable option remaining was him and him performing of that i think is something i appreciate about affleck's performance and it's not as much in the book because affleck i think exudes the very thing that we're supposed to get from nick in the book Um, And I'm still having a hard time articulating what it is about pre-proposal Nick that represents cool guy, because I think that's what it is. Cool guy meets cool girl, and they're both performing. And, you know, to quote another 90s creation, I mean, these are children of the 90s themselves. Like, what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real, (laughs) right, is what the cool girl and cool guy mask falls off, and they're just left with each other, and they don't like each other. And that initial performance, that courtship performance has not only not been real, it's been antithetical to any kind of understanding or happiness. It's, I think she likes that he's not threatening. Like he can give her the things that she wants or he seems to be And he's not a pushover to. at the same time because pushovers are right. interesting. In he's not a pushover, but he's like, yeah. he's enough of a pushover and he's not threatening. And when they have that conversation, which it happens more on the book about the other couples that they know and how the men yeah. are expected to be dancing monkeys, like the way that Amy talks about that is a part of cool girl performance. Like mm-hmm. I'm not that kind of wife. I don't want you to be mm-hmm. a dancing monkey, but 
straight men are expected to do that thing where they complain that that's what their wives have done like this is part of the dance is you know like oh the old lady like she wants me to be home on time and I can't have more than two beers because now I've the ball and chain like that whole narrative is what happens I think that's really what happens when people stop being polite and Mm -hmm. start being real and men have felt entitled to the cool girl is like the cool girl has fallen away because you live together and you're going to be together for decades in your misery now and like, oh, she has desires of her own, and that includes I, maybe that I call her before I'm going to be five hours late to cocktails, and that Amy is responding to, to that and wanting Nick to think she's, you know, extra cool for not caring. But, like, the reality is that the, those everyday couples that are having those disputes are at least actually seeing each other, and Amy and mm. Nick are, like, they're performing it in a cultured and entitled way that's informed by gender and informed especially by masculinity and how men are supposed to like get what they want from relationships and not have to bend to the women that they're in relationships with but they're seeing each other in a way that nick and amy like haven't admitted until all of this goes down that they're performing i think each of them knows that they're performing but they haven't had any kind of moment of looking at each other and saying like you're not the man i married you know Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. So, Amanda, am I right that Nick is the cool guy? Is there an equivalent of the cool? I mean, is there, I don't know, t- talk talk me through your reading of this idea of, like, he is or isn't the cool guy. No, I mean, he is cool, but there there isn't a gendered 
cool guy thing. Like, that's not a phenomenon. I think that's equivalent in the way that women have to perform this very specific... Because the thing that makes up the cool girl is dual expectations that cannot be met. Yes. Mm -hmm. that's right. And there is nothing like that for men. The thing that draws Amy to Nick in that scene, in the movie and in the book, is that he sees her in a way that she wants to be seen, not in reality. But he sees that, like, this is the person you are, therefore you can't be with any of these men. And that's all she wants from him through the whole book, is for him to get her... Mm -hmm. For him to get her clues, for him to understand what she wants, all of that. And so that's what makes him appealing to her. He's not performing that. He's just being charming. And that's the performance that men have to do, right? Like, he's not being, he's not exercising some gendered expectation. He's just being a charming guy to, like, get a pretty girl. And yeah, that's, think... that's all that men have to do is they have to pay attention. Because the bars on the floor for men yeah. when it comes to heterosexual relationships, all they have to do is listen for three seconds. And then they can stop, you know, once they get married and then they end up being the dancing monkey guy. But that I don't think like you need to be a, a decent person in interacting with me at a party is the same thing as you have to jump through these yeah, hoops until you die. <laughs> right. Like the the mythical beast that's kind of halfway off the page here is the man who says he likes strong women and actually does like strong women. But that's a thing that can exist. It just mm -hmm. doesn't have to exist because men don't have to rise to that level, as you're saying. Yeah. Right. And for Amy to say that they don't like strong women means they don't like me. It's like, well, are you a strong woman or are you a murderer? Right. <laughs> like those aren't necessarily. Oh, it's a question for the ages. Strong like, woman or I mean, serial she killer. Kinda, she, I, think, I think that speaks to your point here about how Amy is both fluent in and outside of and manipulating the notions of misogyny and patriarchy that, you know, those of us who like to think we pay attention to this, I'm speaking for here, are fluent in is because she's saying like, we're nodding our heads like, yeah, it's strong women and people don't like that. And they look down on and then she uses that to say, well, that's why he doesn't, that's why I'm being oppressed here because I'm a strong one. It's like, well, maybe it's because you put Scott McNulty in the brink for a year because, you know, you, you framed him for sexual assault and you pushed your best friend in boarding school down the stairs and, is that strong? I'm not so maybe sure. Maybe you're just a bad uh, person. That's what we're talking maybe. about. Maybe you're, are you, are you strong? Or are you just a bad person for, for all genders? That's a question we should ask about more. I, I'm going to think about that idea of charming is the floor. Amanda for a long time. That's a really interesting <laughs> that charming is, um, do we describe women as charming? I guess we do. It mm -hmm. feels like if you describe a man as charming, you're saying more than if you're describing a woman as charming. It's loaded in an interesting, uh, Kind yeah. of way. That's, that's a real thinker um, for me. Okay. Less good things. Amanda, we're, we're on Nick here. Yeah. Um, in the book, especially, I feel like Nick's dude broness is over determined. And they dial that back a little bit in the movie. Did you catch that as well? His um, overt, my dad didn't like women, so I don't like women thing yeah. was weird. I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't as subtle as I remembered it being or as subtle as it is mm -hmm. in the movie. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, what about you for things that are not as great as maybe they could be in the book? I mean, I'm mostly just terrified of Gillian Flynn's brain all the way <laughs> around for all Well, of say it. more about that. Why? I mean... Does her husband sleep with one eye open? <laughs> like for being just being able to think up all of these things. Like Amy's a terrifying character, but a real human person came up with this whole plot that that Amy carries out. And I think it's both amazing and and kind of scary. From from the film, I think I missed 
Nick's voice. I like I like mm. that we get to be in Nick's head as well as be in Amy's head in the book and hearing Nick think through stuff like that that first scene where the cops come to the house and he, they say so you used to live in New York and he's like yes New York City I wrote for magazines and then we in the book he tells us about like <laughs> being aware that it's dumb but that he cares even though he knows it's dumb that he wants these people to know that he wrote for magazines and mm-hmm. his like insecurities are I think they humanize him and it makes him an interesting character in the book and Affleck does a nice job of portraying that but I would have loved some more voiceover from him um yeah and i think just structurally the way that amy speaks about other women and interprets other women in the world Mm -hmm. really does show her to be not a great person we get to see her sociopathy but it weakens the other i think it weakens the other parts of the argument that could be made about why she's angry and what some of the patriarchal issues are that have led to a woman being in this position like earlier in the notes at least amanda used the word desperation to describe Mm -hmm. um, Amy's behavior. And I think we get to see that it would be a lot more potent if it weren't tangled up with also, this is a person who just hates other people and she really hates other women. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if I were, you know, like I would have liked to see some of that taken out of the movie because it, it strengthens the other elements of where Amy's coming from. Just like if you got to go back and do the edit on what do, what do we change between the book and the movie, I think I would have changed some of that. Um, but it's overall, it's really strong. Honestly, my biggest complaint about the movie is why does it need to be two and a half hours long? It was very long yeah. and we'll get that and maybe we'll turn to the movie here in a second. Um, I just, I, and maybe this is a place to put it. I think the thing I miss in the movie, which I don't realize it's such a strength of the book until you see the movie is the metatextual tools that Flynn uses to string us along, mm. right? Um, this is something I wrote about way back in grad school, and I've always interested in it, is using letters and diaries in text to make you feel closer to the character, mm. right? When actually it makes you farther away, the closest you can have is third-person omniscient, right? You can't be any closer than that. But the diary feels like you're getting the person's truth, but people perform for diaries as well. Like, this is a thing we know. Mm-hmm. They perform for letters as well. So you have a nice trick of feeling like you're getting um, Amy's truth, but you're just getting her testimony uh, in advance of what she's going to say in, in Abstitia. And it's it's a wonderful parlor trick that doesn't work in the movie. Mm-hmm. You're not... You'd have to have something equivalent like of that, that Amy had made a movie somehow or like a blog. <laughs> Where she's actually <laughs> using the medium you're consuming mm-hmm. to trick. The, Flynn is using that medium to trick the consumer of that medium into saying, oh, this is legit. This is real. I've got the real McCoy here. Not realizing, not remembering that this is all a construction and that a diary is even farther from that person's interiority than, I guess, you know, the the, the writer of the book being able to plug into her brain matrix style and just pull everything out. And there's no equivalent of that. The surprise of getting the rug pulled out from you in the movie. Again, I had read the book already, so I was prepared for it. But I even think as a naive consumer of the story, it's stronger in the book because you've been tricked by text. Like, this is a writer's trick that a movie maker would have to do something different. And there's really really no equivalent in movies of diaries like this because you have to film Rosamund Pike writing them and it looks more real and fake at the same time. It's a very strange thing where it doesn't, I don't think there's a way out of it um, in this particular case. Uh, Okay, let's do a sponsor break and then we'll switch to the movie. All right. Movie, we said before, 
the the movie wheels were turning as the book was coming out. Uh, the movie came out two years later, so really, we don't see this much anymore. Um, a big best-selling book immediately get turned into a movie like this. Uh, <clears throat> Crawdads, which, hey, don't <laughs> take your time. I'm fine. Um, don't sign me up for that episode. <laughs> and it was a hit. Yeah, it was a hit. It made about $300 million worldwide on a budget of $61.1 million. Um, casting. I mean, Fincher is interesting here. Fincher, who had done Social Network and Zodiac, um, one of the auteurs of our time. Not my favorite director, to be honest with you. And I think he does some things with making making suburban, weirdly, or small-town Missouri look prettier than it should be. I don't know. It's, it's a beautiful movie. And I feel like part of it is that it shouldn't be beautiful because the movie, we didn't say this, the movie doesn't hit as hard as the book of the moment of time it is, 2008 to 2010, mortgage foreclosures, people being out of work, the movie is not as interesting in that because it's already now we're six years after 2008 so it seems seems even less current i think casting was 90 percent of the game here mm-hmm. affleck mm-hmm. seems obvious fincher even said well sometimes the obvious casting is obvious because <laughs> it's the best i don't even think there was another contender affleck apparently always wanted to work with fincher he got this perfect is this a good job by affleck to take this now remember we are in 2014 he is not yes he is not yet divorced jennifer garner I think an Affleck now taking this role is even more interesting. I don't I would, know where we are. I, would, I think he Affleck. would be advised against taking it at this point yeah. in his life. And he's, and he's much too old now, right? Because they're, they're supposed gonna... to be in their mid-30s contemporaneously yeah. with this story. Are they going to write in a weird back tattoo for Nick now? Oh, my gosh. A drinking which, problem. Which, bring us to, which brings us to the most important casting, right, which is Amy. Did you guys do any what-ifs or the, the Roseman Pike casting saga? No. I thought about it. Yeah. But I didn't I didn't well, I, not I, in the real the real life. I didn't deep dive. Yeah, life. well let me give you the real life okay. and we can talk about because I think we need Pike is the star of the the movie mm-hmm. and she's amazing. I think she's remarkable in this movie. I think she's remarkable in, in a lot of different things. I was thinking about her um when we did the Wheel of Time episode, which is wildly different than this and wildly different than the thing I first remember from is two thousand five's Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. directed by Joe Knight, where she plays um the elder, sweeter, you know cool girl Bennett sister there you go Amanda take that one and think about it um, oh no <laughs> oh no oh no um so not she wasn't she's not on Affleck's level of stardom even then or now though she's more famous now and Reese got a hold of the book first hard to see Reese doing this this well and this way the other two people that really wanted it and I'm going to take them one by one in order in ascending order of fit in my estimation Number B or letter B was Natalie Portman. No. React to that in no. real time. Yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. Like the okay, manic pixie more. dream, I mean, Amy? No. No. It's no. Amy is sharp edges, like and so waspy, and she needs to be. And yeah. she has those and Rosamund Pike has those sharky eyes. And I think you need She that. looks like she's like, made out of cut glass. It's, you and you have to come across like smart in a way that reads on screen, and that's hard and relatively rare, I think, um, for this type of character. And I think Natalie Portman is very smart in real life, but she doesn't read as like this much is going on behind the eyes. Her husband wants to crack her head open so he can know what's happened. No, no, no. Yeah, I, don't I think 
you have to be able to fill the space opposite Affleck, and I don't think Portman can do it. Mm. I, you know, she's very good at a lot of things, but I don't think she can do that. So that leads me to the number one contender. I could see this, honestly. I'm glad it didn't happen because I think Pike's amazing, but it's Charlize Theron. Mm-hmm. I think at that oh, point, yeah. that would have been the more star, it's Affleck Theron kind of thing. I think Theron goes on to do the, I don't remember the movie where she shaves her eyebrows off Monster. and gets ugly to win an Oscar kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see why that's appealing. I mean, what can we say about Pike here? I think she's, I can't imagine anyone else in the role. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine Theron who, you know, if you kind of plug her into an algorithm, might spit out a Rosamund Pike lookalike or something like that. But I, I can't figure out why. Is it is it just the visage? Is it the eye? Like, there's something about Pike where she always seems like she's strung out, weirdly. <laughs> like, just the way her her eyes are, like, preternaturally widened in a... Not in not a naive way, but like in a I just saw something terrible kind of way. There's that voice too. Her voice is interesting, yeah. and the way that Amy speaks is interesting. The only pl- person that I got to like even a maybe on, I had two maybes in my like mm. alternate casting in my brain, and one was uh, Carrie Bichet from Halt and Catch Fire, um, who played Donna. That mm. I think she pulls off waspy and smart very well, and I would be- I think it. It would have been a different movie, but she would have been pretty believable. And Rose Byrne, who I would not have said this about a year ago, but mm. um, her performance in Physical on Apple TV, she has that wide-eyed, like, tall, pretty, could be your perfect wife, but maybe she's plotting to kill you thing. Mm. Um, and I, I could have seen that. My my dream is a remake of it with Mackenzie Davis in, like, 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I thought about that, too, but I don't... Pike has a danger to her, and I don't know how to describe it. She seems dangerous. She's an Even ice in queen. The time they use that. Yeah. What about Tilda Swinton? <laughs> oh, well, I, I wondered maybe? about that. I think Tilda Swinton almost is. We're ready for her to be. I don't know. Like Pike walks the line. The other one that I was wondering about um, in this context. Oh, it just flew out of my mind. I'm so sorry. It just flew, 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 flew away. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting as well. I wonder. Anyway, but Pike Pike is amazing. I, there's nothing to be gained by. There's no marginal value of anyone else in her, and probably most of the things are a lot, a lot, a loss. Do you want to say anything else about Affleck here before we move just, on to secondary characters? I mean, just kudos. Like you can't yeah. read the book now, or at least I can't read the book without hearing yeah. Affleck for mm-hmm. Nick, which is the exact same experience that I had when we reread The Martian for the Book Riot Pod earlier mm-hmm. last year, Jeff. That like now I can't read that book without hearing Matt Damon. These are. They were those roles were just so perfectly cast. Affleck's wardrobe is perfect. The facial expressions are perfect. Like he he should have maybe just stopped. <laughs> also, his like, well, his... he kind of did if you look at things that went <laughs> well. Know. To be honest with me, <laughs> his willingness to do the full frontal. Also, <laughs> look, you know, I, I, th- I had a list of things I didn't. Want to <laughs> I talk know that about that was Amanda, on it, but and it had one thing on it. And thank you, you very much. You have to talk about it. You have to. Okay. All right. Go. Let's go. You do your thing. Well, it's such an important moment in the in the yes. movie, not just because, yes. like, you know, I guess fan service. I don't know. Like, women viewers don't often get the full frontal from the dudes ever. I can't think of another mm-hmm. movie actually. But anyway, aside from that. The fact that he is so literally naked in front of her while she has her back turned to him covered in blood and you never yeah. see any part of Rosamund no. Pike except her back and her head. <laughs> like, that is it. And you get all of Nick's, all of it, everything. And then Ben Affleck <laughs> was all like... Together. In his all together. And then he was willing to do that when, like, mm-hmm. obviously most men are not <laughs> because it never happens, I think and is interesting. 
And I think as Amanda was pointing out earlier, like Nick's unlikable too. And to play mm-hmm. a character, uh, to be as like much of a dreamboat as Affleck has been at moments in American pop culture and be willing to play this guy who like is relatively unlikable and turns out to get, he's not a doormat, but he gets trapped with her and he decides to stay there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is an interesting choice. He's not the hero. I mean, there's not a hero in this story, but it's certainly not Affleck. It, he's second fiddle, right? He plays second fiddle in the movie to Pike and Amy, and their relationship turns into sort of a mutually assured destruction sort mm-hmm. of situation. No, no one really wins. I think if anyone wins more than that, it's Amy because all she wants to do is make sure he doesn't win mm-hmm. by the end. Um, yeah, he just looking at his filmography, he's coming off directing the town, winning the Oscar for the director for directing Argo, and then his first big starring role is this. After this, it's a bunch of Batman and other stuff that doesn't work. Um, so you could make a case for this is the the best Affleck role he might ever get because it's not yet complicated where everyone's going to be layering on his post-Jennifer Garner alcoholism, mm-hmm. you know, real philandery stuff. Here's a, a backstory bit. So in 2008, Jennifer Garner and Affleck had to file a restraining order against a stalker <laughs> that had been stalking Jennifer Garner for like eight or 10 years, apparently. Oh, wow. And that one of the things that is a strange cho- or an unusual choice in the movie is to have Amy be this child's book character, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the amazing Amy. And it, it got me thinking about how having her have some notoriety lend some credence to someone just took her. Because mm-hmm. I think it, without that, they go to Affleck even faster, mm-hmm. right? And because we do have these known tropes that famous women at all, you don't have to be even that famous to be the subject of male violence and, and male creepiness bordering on um, feloniousness. And it's just there. And that's in Affleck's his own personal experience with his famous wife is on the page mm-hmm. of you have to do something about that. And I don't know how, how much that is, but it's much more brought home to me that that's a thing that people with any amount of fame I mean, women have to deal with it all, but if you're famous at all, you've got this stuff. Um, these, there's just people out there that know you, not just the men in your life that you know, but all these faceless, nameless dudes that want to do bad stuff to you. Terrifying shit. Completely terrifying shit. Mm. Secondary characters, what a wonderful cast. Oh, my God. I mean, come on. <laughs> Neil, Patrick Harris. <laughs> Forever. Is that, is that our... So we, did, so we did Pike, Affleck, one, two. That's pretty easy. Where do you want to go three, Amanda? If you're picking three for, for side side characters here you want to go with patrick yes harris neil patrick harris is creepier than nick and amy put together there's that scene when you when he when she like when he takes her into the bedroom for the first time as desi and she's like i want to go to sleep and then he turns around and as he's leaving he like rubs his hand up and down the wall a little bit i did not like that at all I mean, <laughs> right I like and he says i'm not gonna force myself on you and as he rubs his hand on the wall i just like actual chills just like ah yeah. There's like little, just little ticks in his voice and like little micro facial expressions yes. that he has so much control of his face. And dude has range. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we don't have, there, I'm not seeing nearly enough discourse about Neil Patrick Harris's range. How I met oh, you your sociopath. Resurrections? It came. The mate, the, he was, uh, spoiler, uh, type, well, with this movie, with this movie in mind, maybe he is playing to a certain Neil Patrick Harris type, but there was a Neil Patrick Harris discourse around his role oh, okay. in Matrix Resurrections too. Um, worth watching just for some of the... He plays a therapist uh, Amanda, oh, uh, Rebecca, yes. so I think you need to just look at that, the bad guy mean. therapist. The moment when he's he, like when they're talking about how they're going to go to Greece and he's just like mm. octopus and scrabble. 
just the de- <laughs> like, just the delivery of that there's another moment when he's showing her the bathroom and just kind of casually tosses off like in the tub has a massage cycle and the way he says it was like this is it's just perfect like the the words that are coming out of his mouth are completely innocuous but everything that he's doing with his face and his body tell you that this is bad news bears it's terrifying yeah yeah he, I mean, he's the he's the kidnapper we're expecting. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we're expecting a character like that. Like if that's why her, that's why her story kind of plays to the public at the end, even with all the holes in it. That uh, <laughs> how God she lover, get the Kim box Dickens cutter? is trying to, <laughs> yeah. trying to poke holes uh, in the argument at the press conference. But like we're ready to indict someone like that, and maybe rightfully so, um, as it turns out. There, I think I'm going with Carrie Coon Same. as the stealth MVP as go. Um, the cool girl Ben wants, right? Mm-hmm. Hangs out with his twin sister that they can be completely fluent in their own particular twin language with. Really no strings attached. Um, it's non-sexual, of course, but also it is exactly the kind of companionship he seems to be asking from Amy, but because they're married and, su- and supposedly sharing their lives is impossible and practical and unfair to ask. But you, as you see him walk into the bar that first time, and their repartee is gives you a sense of what he's looking for and how impossible and unfair it is to ask of that in a life partner. Because where's her life, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's all subject to giving him money when he needs it and working the bar when he shows up late and taking care of the mom while she's in the first throes of being sick. She is completely an emotional and existential sponge for all of his um, weaknesses and, mm-hmm. and emptiness. And that's what he's looking for. And that Amy isn't that meaningfully. They don't get along. Go. And um, mm-hmm. Amy, because I think they, they recognize something in each other um, that's unhelpful. So I, she's really wonderful. And I, there's a lot of people in this that I don't, I know her in other things. Like Kim Dickens, I only remember her as Matt Saracen's mom from Friday Night Lights. I think she's awesome. Patrick Fugit, I think as a seconds per I wanted more Patrick Fugit, but it's only because I didn't get very much. And I loved him smirking and always like, no, can you believe this guy? And I didn't like him at all. I didn't like him either. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. He's Go. 12 years old. <laughs> You're not a detective. You're barely a traffic cop. Go home. It's it's North Carthage, Missouri, Amanda. The bench ain't deep here. We've got to get 28-year-olds I mean, where we can get them. No, he's Speaking an infant. Of- it's unbelievable as a detective. <laughs> Since you're going to shout out the North Carthage part, Jeff, I think this is my moment to be like, what is up with the Southern accents that these people have in Missouri, not very far from St. Louis? Do we need to get into a detailed discussion of where this is? Because maybe you and I are interested in this. Are we in the Ozarks? How close to the Arkansas border are we in North Carthage, Missouri? In the book, there's a reference to... The to Tyler Perry's character, Tanner Bolt, the lawyer, is staying in a five-star hotel in St. Louis, and it's like 45 minutes away from mm-hmm. from where they are. Nowhere in a 45-minute range of downtown St. Louis is speaking in an accent like that, because within a 45-minute range of downtown St. Louis, you're just in the suburbs, like maybe in a, a smaller town. But the, it's we don't have to do deep geography, but I take umbrage with those southern accents. <laughs> is this, I mean, it's not the south, no matter of what St. part Louis? of Missouri. What's that? Yeah. Is it? I mean, I, I'm a little lost about where we are in the movie, especially because I feel like we could be like in Joplin or something like that, which there's a part of southern Missouri that wants to be more southern than it is. Well, do you know I what think, I'm saying, Rebecca? I like, think they're that. playing fast and loose with Midwestern well, geography for the yes. movie because yeah. of people's stereotypes about flyover country but yeah my, my dander was up 
in a Guardian piece where this is a book about the Midwest. And I'm like, I don't know no. what you're is talking it? about. This is also <laughs> it's, not. It's no. this and part it, of it is this this weird liminal space that's sort of nowhere. I think that's and, the point. It's yeah, like and this nowhere suburb and this New meaningless York town. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't it, have it, an identity. Like that's the point of the yes. Town, it, it really just matters that it's not New York. It's like the negative image of yeah. New York to be in this place. And I just wanted to go back to what you were saying a minute ago, Jeff, about like how stylized Fincher's presentation yeah. of the place is. Because that it seems very sharp. The whole movie feels just like a couple notches more stylized mm-hmm. than I expected it to. Um, it's been a long time since the first time I watched it, where you feel very aware that what, or I did, that you're seeing a presentation of a place, that you're seeing a story yes. being told. They're not striving for realism, and it probably landed even more potently because of watching somebody somewhere on HBO and seeing yeah. just like a very, you know, earthy presentation of mm-hmm. small towns in the Midwest at the same time, but that they live in this like huge suburban like it's a McMansion. They're in this McMansion yeah. in the suburbs in this Midwestern town. And, you know, their neighbors are just these sort of average Midwestern stereotypes as well. But I, I think it's interesting that Fincher made that choice about how the place looks, especially relative to how Amy feels about living there. Yeah, I think the movie becomes a kind of generic stand-in for an upper middle class suburban or upper yeah, middle upper middle class mm-hmm. suburban where in the book it's very specific like these are homes that have been foreclosed on that's why they got a good deal on rent there's people squatting in the house down the way that is kind of like it's much seedier and run down um anyway it has more of a i don't know southern noir vibe than whatever sheen that's getting yeah. put on here by the way amanda in 2014 patrick fugit was 32 years old <laughs> So he was 17 and had not even been accepted to the police academy yet. Okay, I'm saying. Uh, other casting choices we want to talk about? Tyler Perry! Tyler Perry, he's great. He was great. He was great. I think one of the things that struck me in watching the movie, and I hadn't seen the movie in a long time, and I hadn't read the book in a long time either, is how aware of media the book and movie are, and also the characters are. Like, mm. Nick says at one point, I feel like I'm in a movie. Oh, this is the law and order part where they go dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. Like they're all mediated, literally mediated through their experiences. And their and our culture's fluency with popular culture is something Amy is manipulating, right? Mm -hmm. This is how this is going. We all have these stories rolling around our heads that things go a certain way. And if I can keep my story uh, within the accepted tropes that we have about how things go, it's very hard to swerve people off that trope. It's very hard to get people to think outside of types, stereo, um, or otherwise there. Um, Ozark grifters. Can we talk about the Ozark grifters for a second? (laughs) This is my biggest nitpick about this book. Yeah, I agree. That, it's Which is that she would develop a relationship she, with these two people. That she would let herself relax that much. This woman has like a five-page checklist of all the things she's been doing to prepare to get out and fake her death and, and then eventually kill herself. And she's mm. going to just like feel totally comfortable being seen by strangers because she's put on a few pounds and dyed her hair. She's going to make friends with people in this Ozark place. Like I didn't buy it in the book or the movie that Amy mm-hmm. goes and hangs out in like a roadside motel somewhere where anybody could see her. Yeah. I, I think I agree with that. Even as much as I like the idea that she gets ripped off, like she gets conned or at least she's not um, superior in all situations. I feel like you could have done that without her 
I don't know. You're right. She's not as careful as she should like, be, and we'd expect her to be in that moment. It sets yeah. her up. It sets up the moment where she goes to Desi. But if Desi's been pining for her for decades, she didn't need to have the whole the whole Ozark interlude in the first place. She could have just faked her death and then called Desi and been like, "Yo, you're gonna see me missing on the news, but I'm alive and I need you to take me in." Like, I think it does emphasize well, a little bit that Emmy that Amy is not. She's not street smart. Like she's that's true. A spoiled mm. rich white girl from Manhattan. Why would she know to not befriend people who are being nice to her in when she's like at a moment of weakness? She would. She, I don't think that she would like. She's smart and she's calculating, but she's also spoiled and and like stupid in a lot of ways. That's great, yeah, that's a great point. That's the narcissism thing, right? Like that it wouldn't yeah. occur to her. That, like nothing bad can happen yeah. to me. That, right. That I'm amazing could, Amy. I'm right? superior right. to this yeah. situation. Right. Surely right. I can survive. If I can survive in New York, but I can get along here. In my, my yeah, brownstone. I, I, <laughs> the other thing that's hard to reckon with, and maybe it doesn't matter, but an important switch, you know, there's a couple of turns that maybe don't qualify as twists in the common parlance, but it is a change where she decides not to kill herself. Mm-hmm. And that has something to do with that Ozark interlude, like something in her mind... I don't know. I, I don't think it plays especially well in the book or the movies. Like, why does she decide not to kill herself in this moment? Because the only reason she goes away with 10,000 because she thinks that's all she's going to need. Um, I never to believed play out that she was going to in the first place. It's a great, that's an interesting Because idea. Amy's character, her whole, her whole arc is about self-obsession. Like, she yeah. feels so mm-hmm. entitled to the life that she wanted that she's willing for Nick to die so that she can have it or because she can't have it. Like, she's trying to send him to the electric chair, essentially. But I don't think that she was ever... Like, the whole time... Like, in the movie, when you start seeing that calendar she's flipping through where she's moving the post-its that say, kill self, question mark, I never thought she would ever actually get there. Because she... Like, narcissists love themselves. That's the Mm -hmm. whole point of the diagnosis. She likes herself too much, even though she knows other people don't, to ever hurt herself in any real way. And I guess she's realized that the logical conclusion of her perfect trap for Nick is that she's also trapped into not existing. Mm-hmm. And the only way to handle that is to, you know, it is sort of the uh, uh, the end of the Rube Goldberg machine is for her to show up, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico or somewhere. Mm-hmm. But eventually she doesn't want to do that. She's not willing to, I mean, understandably so, play it out to the full logical extent of the plan. And that gets her... Uh, that's a kink in the plan that she wasn't thinking about. So I think that's an interesting way. But I just think that her getting suckered in by these two people and being so fast and loose, I guess maybe if she thinks of herself as already dead, but then when she wants to survive, it's kind of weird um, to go there. Uh, Let's see. Adaptation changes. I guess since Flynn wrote the screenplay, there's not a lot that's different. I'm not sure that the movie has anything to recommend it over the book, except that you get to see really good, casting right i mean is there anything that the movie adds uh to the book that you don't get in the book the score I liked... the score say more about that it's trent reznor which you can i think feel like immediately mm-hmm. and he also did fincher's yeah. uh the social network what was that movie was yeah. it called the social network yeah he did yeah. the score the for social that network, too yes. yeah it's trent reznor and atticus uh ross and just that like driving orchestral ominous Oh, that that scene where she's uh, in Desi's house and fake like setting up the rape and the the, the orchestra just gets louder and louder mm-hmm. with every heartbeat is just it's so good and I think it makes Amy a lot more ominous than she is in yeah. the book. In the book, she's you know 
unhinged and a, and a, a dangerous, but in the movie, it really feeds into that, I think. Well, and that she's covered in blood in Neil Patrick Harris's bed, which is, sure. you know, a, a visual you can't, you can't even describe. I don't think it's described that way in the book. I don't remember exactly, but the, that's one of the situations where the visual is so overwhelming that mm-hmm. something that the book can't um, do at all. I, the, two, the two things I noticed especially that were changed, or their additions, and I think they're both to do a little bit more with Nick. One is that scene where he sits down with the bloggers, right, um, oh, yeah. to propose to her. And then the other one is when they're on a treasure hunt. No, it's not a treasure hunt. Where it's their uh, second anniversary, I think, is cotton. Mm. And she gives him sheets. And then he also has the sheets in his Mm -hmm. backpack. Mm -hmm. That's something the Nick of the book would have never, ever, ever done. He would have never thought of it. He would have never done it. And I'm not exactly sure why. I I guess it's to make to build more sympathy for us for Nick that Amy is not, he's not so out to lunch (laughs) and I'm not sure why that needs to happen. I I find myself lingering on that question. I didn't believe that that happened because it's Amy's, Amy's telling us that in her diary, that that's a moment that they had. Amy's telling us that in her diary. I I see. That's a great, maybe that's, maybe that's right. Right. Like the flashbacks are all told through Amy's, Mm -hmm voice and her quote-unquote memory but it's all the diary entries right that Mm -hmm. that she's constructed but it's not even a diary entry in the book even right yeah either either amy or gillian flynn are trying to make nick seem a little more responsive uh, (laughs) i don't know or that he's fault if he was ever that kind of partner the way that I read that switch on the screen is that he once was such a good dude for her mm-hmm. that he, you know, cottoned on to the, sorry, um, to yes. the, the... You followed the thread there. Right, he hey. followed him. There it is. Hey. And there he, that he paid enough attention that he would have bought the same, like, not just a nice gift, but the exact same thing that she had in mind. And this is how far they've mm-hmm. fallen to the moment that they're in now. And... I, go ahead. I think... That shows that switch, and then we got to spend a little more time with some of Amy's past victims, like Scoot McNary showing up as Tommy yeah. O'Hara, to me really like amplified, or made it feel more present, the kind mm-hmm. of damage that Amy had done to people in her past. And then the other big, I, I, I mean, it's not even big, but the other big change is that in the book, she gets to Desi's house and Desi has this room like decorated for her mm-hmm. and it's super creepy because it dawns on her like an hour later like wait this paint is not fresh so how long has this room been waiting for me and he's plenty I mean Neil Patrick Harris as we have said is amazing he's plenty creepy on screen but pulling I thought it was interesting to pull that out and it, it makes him like half a tick less sinister than that mm. character can be. Amanda, you have a note here. I think we mentioned before about like what exactly was Nick and Amy's real marriage like? Yeah. After leaving New York, like what is what is Amy so torked off of? <laughs> I mean, so there's obvious. There's and why does he cheat that, on that, her? And why does he cheat on her? Like the whole middle, like Richard Yeatsian Revolutionary Road mm-hmm. part of the story is completely we excised. Don't I get think any that's of it. why. I think that's why it's completely excised is that it's just like Revolutionary Road normal. The, we like, all know the, the story. But I don't stuff. think it can be normal with these two people. Maybe with him. Like, I, I would totally believe the narrative that she got naggy and so he went and got a t- 20-year-old student to sleep with. That's like tale as old as time, right? right? 
but her side of it and we both characters in the in the book and the movie secondary characters do confirm that her her story of like their early courtship is pretty accurate because nick says that Mm -hmm. it is as well but then once they once they both get laid off and amy starts to spin this tale of a slowly self-destructing guy that's probably not true. And Nick tells Go, you know, all of these sob stories about how she's horrible and doesn't understand me, but he never says why. Like, he never provides stories. He never gives examples. All he says is yeah. that she sets up treasure hunts that I don't get and that she has high expectations of me, but we don't know what that looks like at all. So, like, what does he do to her that sets her off like this? She catches him cheating, but, like, but it She's been setting this up for years? Like, where does it all come from? I just have a lot of I questions. Think it's, <laughs> I think it's just the steady accumulation of disappointing each other. Like, that the, that mm-hmm. each one, death of a thousand cuts, but that mm-hmm. each cut feels bigger than the one before it because you had 999 before you got to the thousandth. Mm-hmm. And that over time, each of those little things feels like a really big insult because they just keep accumulating like i i felt like that it was really purposeful that flynn doesn't show us any of that in a kind of like well you know how these people end up here and that it's unremarkable yeah i think that's maybe where the domestic horror comes in it's like the scariest part is we all know how easy that kind of a situation is that Mm -hmm. kind of a cycle to get into like that's that's the most real the thing that's the most realistic and familiar is excise because i think we can fill in the blanks we know how this goes and I think there's a case to be made that if we get the specifics of it, it kind of upsets the delicate balance Flynn has of, is it Nick's fault? Is it Amy's mm-hmm. fault? Who's being unreasonable here? The more data we would get, if it's just that they were growing apart, then Amy seems way out of proportion, mm-hmm. right? Then, then it's really a question earlier about what's going on. And if Nick, is re- if Nick really hits her, then we're in goodbye Earl territory. Mm-hmm. And it's not as, you know, it's not as interesting later. So I think... It's usefully vague, but I also found myself really compelled. Like, what was the moment where they started drifting apart, and was it ever salvageable at any moment? Mm-hmm. I, well, I, not when she catches him say, with the with the girl after yeah. that, and like that's yeah. a whole other question of like, what is an appropriate what, West Wing? Like, what's the proportional what's response proportional? to catching yeah. your take his bar I, right? middle aged I mean, husband? Take his bar and go. Yes. Yes, yeah. that's kind yeah. of the revenge story that I want <laughs> is where she just destroys right. his life in like a normal way <laughs> with a lawyer. Right. <laughs> my yeah, brain right now is... hangs over it too. Go ahead. Rebecca. Oh, my brain is doing a whole thing about like goodbye Earl and fried green tomatoes as precursors to Gone Girl right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it is. It's a natural extension, right? Like at what point, if you've been wronged, can you kill your partner is kind of a weird it is a weird question Mm -hmm. if if they continually beat you i think our mass market cultural things have said okay if they continue to beat you and there's no way out then you can barbecue his ass Mm -hmm. all right is there anything short of that and this is probably as short of that as people would maybe even entertain right you took my i mean it's not just that he cheated you moved me away from new york um you took my trust fund but i also kind of agreed to give it to you mm-hmm. like that's why i said flynn has this very carefully balanced so that at no point until she's ready to does she tip her hand about what's going on because you can kind of see it's like well maybe she did disappear herself just to get away maybe he did hit her one night drunkenly mm-hmm. these are all familiar stories but at some point you realize that no there is a there is a non-proportional response and 
that's what this looks like. But the banality yeah. of it is the point, <laughs> right? The, yeah. the banality think, is kind of the point. I think Nick, because I, of course, because of who I am as a person, was like, I know whose fault yeah. this is. I think Nick's to blame for their marriage being yes. what it is, ultimately. She's to blame for destroying their lives, insulting the earth, you know, like everything that comes after. But like, it's very easy to say, I have friends with this marriage. My friends aren't sociopaths. So their marriage is ended in normal, non-sociopathic ways. (laughs) With lawyers. With lawyers. Right, exactly. (laughs) Because their husbands were Nick. Like, that's exactly what happened. But her, (laughs) the rest of it is like... Okay. Her, yeah, her they obsession with Amy. him. Right. Her obsession right. with Nick. Turns is, out they weren't. Is like the Hannibal least livable part teeth. of this yeah. to me. Right. I, I want her to be less obsessed with him. I want her to be a better sociopath. <laughs> well, so what are you? So what are you saying? You want the goodbye Earl of this level of infraction? That's not. I mean, so what is no, that story? Though? Because it's she like, is like, it not the we go get lawyers and we have joint custody and it's just sort of that story. I think that Nick is such a garbage person that if she took his bar Mm. and smeared his girlfriend's name in public and did all the things that come of a really public nasty divorce when you are the one at fault i think that would have been just as satisfying and even like just as much of an like of a statement about justifiable female anger in heterosexual relationships yeah. She needs to be rich to do all of that. She needs to be white to do all of that. Like, she needs mm-hmm. to be who she is. But what she does is so over the top that it's almost less interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think I, I'm on your wavelength here. Go ahead, Rebecca. I think it's... I think that sort of goes along with the conversation we were having at the top of this, that Amy's not making a feminist right. argument mm-hmm. about things that men do to women in heterosexual relationships it's really just about like how dare you mm-hmm. have done this to me mm-hmm. and that yeah. it gets wrapped up in her being angry about things that are very valid for women to be angry about makes it murky where mm-hmm. different versions of the story could have been clear but it that it's just about her that it's about her and the fact that she is unwilling to be perceived as having lost in any way and or married this loser and Mm -hmm. i can't be seen as having married this guy who turns out to be a loser how dare you have done that to me it's not part of the picture right like it's not part of the picture it's not part of how she wants to be perceived i think that's what she's actually getting revenge for and she's telling herself and us Mm. on the page a little bit of a story that some of this has to do with some of this is about feminism, but for Amy, mm. it's not for us is like no. normal. Like for me and Amanda's like normal suburban women who mm-hmm. would just get mad and then use a lawyer. Like right. that, that's, that's the argument here. Are the, and I think that's what makes the character relatable, but the character herself is not, she's not out for feminist revenge. She's just mad that a thing was done to her. Mm-hmm. I think it's, that cycles around the similar question. It goes back to that West Wing moment. I think, Amanda, you just referenced the proportional response because the thing they get, the loop they get into is that there's only a proportional response and, and Bartlett asks, well, what else is there? And it's like, well, that's, this is it. Mm-hmm. And you're kind, it sounds like what you guys are sort of circling around. Is there something beyond the regular normie response of divorcing, <laughs> lowering up and getting divorced and salting the earth? Is there some other kind of like, it reminds me of Paradise, Rebecca, where mm. the women come back and like start killing dudes. Like it's so like these like what kind of vengeance? Clearly, Amy is out of scale, but also it feels too small just to take the bar. Like you've done more to me than I just take your bar. 
because that's not restorative. I, I'm not whole. I'm not made whole by that. Mm. So that's not enough. But getting well, him a death sentence is not right. There's no answer, I guess, yeah, is maybe well, the other way of putting it. I think there is no answer. And Amy's a bottomless pit. Like, <laughs> there's, right. yeah. there's no, Johnny Ringo. Yeah, there's no making her whole. Yeah. But for somebody who's not a sociopath, doing something like committing murder not only won't make you whole, it will make you less human. And yeah. I mean, she's just not interested in that analysis at all. I think maybe the bigger question is not like in real life, what would the proportional response be? Because obviously right. murder is not it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's what I was, that's why what I was doesn't saying. the story of a woman, like why does she have to be a sociopath for this to be mm-hmm. a bestseller? She's responding to things that a lot of women are very angry about justifiably. Most of them don't leave, actually. Most of them yeah. Yeah. don't take the bar and go off and, you know, get their groove back <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh, most of them stay with these men forever. So does it have to be? Like, I, I, I don't know the answer. I'm like, you know, just kind of articulating this now. Yeah. Like, wh- why does for something to be a story that everyone is interested in reading, why does she have to be? evil why can't she just be a person like get, i don't know i don't know yeah maybe if it were just um, i don't know i mean i think that's an interesting point amanda like why does she do what why does what she does up to a point i should say feel satisfying because mm-hmm. it does she tips over a line where it's not satisfying mm-hmm. but because she gets to make the rules i think right mm-hmm. she's been subject to these unfair rules as as codified by the cool girl monologue and her retributive justice is to create a new set of rules that are now unfair to Nick. Mm -hmm. That's fair. That's a kind of contrapasso hammer Ami's code eye for an eye. You, you benefited from a set of unfair rules. Now I'm going to benefit from a set of unfair rules, Mm -hmm. but then all you get is mutually assured destruction. There's no, that's not a way to govern a society clearly, but it's also not a way to govern your life. Cause I think it's important to say where they end up, which is in this, nobody wants this situation. Mm -hmm. I don't think. Right. We're all stuck together. And congratulations to us. We're not in jail and we're not dead. And maybe this is better, but maybe not. And now we're having a child. Maybe. (laughs) And now we're having a child, which I'm sure will turn out super great. And that person will not turn into (laughs) Neil Patrick Harris at all. Um, But, you know, and maybe in that way, it is more of a systemic critique. Is this if we're if the cool girl mantra is is what we're going to work with. We better realize that this is the outcome of this. There is no way for this to work for everyone. Yeah. This is not going to work. You're going to get unhappy marriages and cheating husbands and pissed off women. Mm-hmm. So the only thing is war game style not to play, right? The only way to win this game is not to play. Yeah, I think you get a little bit more of that on the page where we get to know how responsible Amy's parents are for the way Amy is. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. like, you know, that they're constantly critiquing her, that the book character shows up doing the things that Amy made mistakes in in real life, but the character does them correctly or however her parents want her to have done them. So she's been aware of this performance her whole life and that like this is what these cycles produce if you can never live up to your parents expectations you become this person who's you know perpetually performing and maybe at the extreme end of that you end up with an amy who there's like amy can't produce any other child kind of child than another version of herself Mm -hmm. maybe even a worse one and i think we missed that from the movie a little bit i mean they took two and a half hours and they couldn't get to everything and like you have mm-hmm. to leave some things on the cutting room floor but 
drawing those lines or like what what are her parents like behind closed doors like no couple that appears that perfect in public is actually that perfect um is an interesting question her parents wigged me out in the the book i'm like come on man this is two psychologists codependent stuff i'm not Mm -hmm. into that i i can't handle that we're going to end on this because Amanda left an idea for a sequel that is going to haunt my dreams, <laughs> which is Amy and Nick as parents. So we fast forward to like soccer practice. Um, PTA li- meetings, little, baby. <laughs> Amy li- is the PTA little, president. Uh, I can't. I don't it's like, know. It's like the dark version of Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach's Instagram. I want to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I think there might be something to use the same tone in the realm of parenting. Let's put it that way, Amanda. Mm-hmm. Can we agree to to leave it there and please never pitch this to someone and not well, have I this be a real thing in the world? In my ideal universe, the Gone Girl would be this. Like, Gone Girl would fast forward to them as, as parents. Mm. And, like, then what does she do when he wrongs her because that compounds look if you want to talk about problems and inequalities in heterosexual relationships childcare is the third rail like the 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 work that women have to do the expectations that women have to deal with when they become mothers like amy's mad now (laughs) just wait (laughs) so she has the baby I mean, She's going to launch the nukes when yes, it gets to, wait a minute, I have to, what do I have to do to, to get my kid to not be in my He's going to say one thing about today? her losing the baby weight, and she's going to cut his legs off. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, that goes back to the point you made earlier about Amy lacking street smarts. Like, it yes. seems to me that she has not actually thought through what's going to happen when this no. baby comes. She has not. <laughs> no. Yeah, that, she's thought to the end of one line, but... To get there, it foreclosed everything else. If this were made, I'm sorry, we're going to end up here. If this were made today, it would 1,000% be an eight-episode HBO Max series. Like, that's what Gillian Flynn is writing now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would be, I mean, if you kept the same cast and everything, like Fincher has done, you know, Mindhunter, and he's done some stuff like this. Or was that Brian Singer? I get them confused. That's not fair, because Brian Singer is not a savory person. Um, (laughs) I, I don't know. It's a long, is it, it was long, but it didn't leave... I'm not sure what else it would leave out, that it could leave out. Rebecca, you're the one. I think I was agree with you. It's like two and a half hours of a long hang. But then is the next stretch six hours? You'd have to do Station Eleven stuff and really I mean, stuff the turkey. I think if you had to spin it out, <laughs> stuff the turkey. If you had to spin this out to eight hours, you would do stuff like Lost and Station Eleven yeah. did where you an would, hour with Desi. Yeah, a man, that's I would. That's, that, that's the spinoff oh, I want that. is just yeah. what has Desi been doing since high school? Like, I would watch. I, I would watch at least eight hours of that. But uh, yeah, I think an episode of Desi, an episode of Tyler Perry and his wife. And I was sad that we didn't yeah. get that character's yeah. wife in the movie. Yeah. An episode of Amy's parents at yeah. home. Something with Go. Yeah. Go. Like, the, the triplet the, mom. I would love. That. Oh God, Casey Wilson deserves a shout out. She was well cast in that Noel Hawthorne yeah. character as well. Yeah, that she coming from happy endings, yeah. she's like a version of that character who who's still twenty seven and living in Chicago. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a fascinating idea. I do, I do think about the like it's masked as a procedural, but it's really interesting the formulations you get on Nick's side of people figuring stuff out. You know, mm-hmm. Tyler Perry comes in, then he's on the cop side, then are against him. His parents are with him, then against him as well. 
Um, that's pretty interesting. I think the heartbreakingest moment for me, and I maybe it's because I so want to disassociate myself from any of the Nick and Amy stuff, is where Go Nick is telling Go that Amy's pregnant and he's going to stay. Mm-hmm. And she's on the floor in the kitchen just crying her eyes out and saying, this is, and it's going to be like this. And I said, I'd love you forever. And I will, but my heart is breaking and the makeup is all over the place. And go as moral center is another interesting way of looking at, because she flips, right? She doesn't love Amy, but she's like, Nick, you effing idiot. Mm-hmm. When she realizes she's having an affair. So how she's presented is sort of like, rational normal, normal people person? consciousness yeah. <laughs> is fascinating um to see as well any other last moments we've been going for almost two hours here which does not feel that mm-hmm. way but this is this is one of the juicy ones last last things we want to get in my favorite part is when he calls her the c word at the end when she reveals yeah. that she's pregnant and that whole like it's not a monologue it's just a few lines that she delivers mm. but that line the only time you've ever liked yourself is when you were trying to be somebody this C word would like mm-hmm. is maybe the most yeah. cutting thing I've ever heard in my life. Say more about that. I just, why so? the only time you ever liked yourself is when you were trying to be somebody a horrifying sociopath would find interesting. Like you as a person are totally worthless unless you are performing for me, which kind of goes back to that whole dancing monkeys thing that they mm-hmm. had forever. But that's all she ever wanted him to be was this like, awful dancing monkey and that's the only time he ever liked himself and i just do you think oh yeah i think what is that about it's so fascinating it, you're right I, I don't know if i found it as cutting as despondent because mm. it did feel true is like when he stopped wanting to impress her is when he turned into generic cheating guy mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that was the end of the rope there and it's not clear why that happened. Was it that he saw his mom die and now he's back in Missouri and he feels comfortable? He like he has her so he doesn't have to perform anymore? Mm-hmm. I guess that's maybe as, as possible as anything. Um, there's a couple of shots I want to talk about. I, I, was, I almost thought about the calling this segment Let's Do Shots, which I thought was funny. <laughs> um, there's a shot I'd never seen before. There's so many, so, so much of this is familiar to us, like the reporters and the news being outside of a house in a mm-hmm. situation like this. There was a shot Fincher does of the cat in the window yeah. looking at all the reporters. I'm like, that's so interesting. I've never thought of the pet's reaction to the reporters <laughs> being outside. But that's good. On the bad side of Let's Do Shots, we get um, Amy, voracious reader, planning to be murderess uh, extraordinaire. <laughs> and she's doing her research. And all of her books are on the table, like mm-hmm. fanned out. I'm like, what? That's the real. That's how I knew she was a real monster. No one actually does that. No one puts all of their books out, fanned out on a table and then puts them on the shelf every night so Nick doesn't see that she's re- researching how to commit a perfect crime. Like, what is that? That's just movie garbage for a shorthand for she's reading a lot of books. I mm-hmm. hated that one. Those are my list two shots. <laughs> Don't like those. Glad you got that off All right. your chest. I, you know, some, I got trying to give someone a little something different. This has been so digested that I'm not even sure what else to, to say about it. Um, well, Gone Girl holds up. Good adaptation. We didn't say that. This yeah, is a good adaptation. It's a good yeah. adaptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't give us anything new, but it doesn't screw anything up. Um, there we go. Amanda, mm. Rebecca, um, let's never go to the abandoned mall. <laughs> I don't plan to go to Missouri in general. So, but Octopus as a Kansan, I, I couldn't harder core recommend <laughs> not going to Missouri. That's one of the things that we do. Octopus. And, I just don't recommend octopus to anyone ever. Oh, is like what octopus. I say. Get, use a, but use the Italian or something. You got You can't call it octopus. Gross. <laughs> Gone girl. Go read it if you haven't. Holds up well. <laughs> <laughs>